This is David Tarkington. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For more information about our church, First Baptist Church of Orange Park, and our network, the First Family Network, go to firstfam.org. You can check out my site at davidtarkington.com. So the character uh, was created in 1962. Marvel Comics creators Stan Lee and Jack Kirby introduced the world to this character known as the Incredible Hulk. Originally, he was a giant gray creature, and uh, then he became a giant green creature as they, they shift a little bit and change some inking in the books. And the character was popular in the early 60s and has remained popular to this day. It has had uh, a number of, of iterations, and uh, as comic books and magazines do, they'll rebirth him, reintroduce him, change things. But, but over time, we, we know, and you might, be, you might remember, the popular, very popular 1970s television show starring Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno. I'm looking at, there's a, there's a generation of people in here that are shaking their heads, and there are others that go, yeah, my dad watched that. I got it. I got it. I understand. Uh, I, it made Friday nights fun for me as a kid. So... The Incredible Hulk television show came on TV. It was uh, a little different than the comic characterizations, but, but a lot of fun regarding it, even there. So Bill Bixby played the, the main character, and then when he would transform into the Hulk, he was played by Lou Ferrigno. Fun fact, Bill Bixby made sure that in public he was never seen with Lou Ferrigno. Did you know that? See, you need to study some Wikipedia or something. Find out these things that don't matter. He did not want to ruin the illusion for the children who watch the show uh, that he and Lou Ferrigno were actually two individuals. So uh, Bill has uh, since passed away. Lou Ferrigno is still alive. He's actually been uh, played, played in a couple of the Hulk movies. So there's been some movies out. There have been one, two two individual uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe movies for the Hulk. Uh, and then most recently, the character, the actor has changed and the character has been featured in the Avengers films, which makes a billion dollars every time a new one comes out or more. And he is played by the actor Mark Ruffalo, uh, playing the human identity of Dr. Bruce Banner. So Dr. Bruce Banner. So in, in just fun fact, um, Stan Lee, when he was creating all these characters, really liked a, a little, the, the names of his characters to start with the same letter. It made him easier to remember. So Spider-Man was Peter Parker. Mr. Fantastic was Reed Richards. Hulk was Bruce Banner. So you kind of get this not as creative as you thought he was, apparently. So Bruce Banner was the character. Now, each iteration of the character differs in the origin story of the Hulk, but there are some common pieces that each have taken. So you have Dr. Bruce Banner, except in the television show he was Dr. David Banner. David Bruce Banner. In the comic book, he's Robert Bruce Banner. Anyway, they changed that. But Dr. Banner was a scientist and was blasted with an extreme amount of gamma radiation. The result following this radiation poisoning was that whenever Dr. Banner became extremely angry or agitated, he would transform into a large, green, muscle-bound creature of diminished intelligence who would destroy things, fight bad guys or good guys, because he wasn't that sharp and couldn't always differentiate, and frighten a lot of bystanders and destroy things. That's what he would do. Uh, my favorite part of the old television show was this one little scene that was filmed in the original pilot, and then every, every episode that came on on Friday night when they would show the theme song, they incorporated this scene. It was the greatest line in superhero television history. Bill Bixby, the character Banner, Dr. Banner, is being chased by 
uh, a reporter, an investigative reporter who is trying to prove the existence of the Hulk and capture him and all of this. And so there's that one scene where Banner looks to him and says, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. I have used that line many times to no avail. It didn't mean anything, but to the Bruce Banner, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. And yet every Friday evening when the show came on, it was clear that Dr. Banner's advice was not being heeded. Otherwise, there would be no show that evening. And Dr. Banner would get angry. And, he, and the music would change, and he would turn quickly to the, to the camera, and his, eye, his contacts would change. He would have these white eyeballs. And then, lo and behold, the transformation would occur, and he became Lou Ferrigno, the giant green hulking monster with a great hairstyle. In the comics, the Hulk stands almost nine feet tall. Not, not only is he very large, very strong and durable. Numerous iterations, as I said, as they have reintroduced him and changed some things. But in most cases, his skin is not unlike Superman's. They shoot him and the bullets fly off. The Hulk doesn't fly, but why would you need to? When you have legs, the strength of the Hulk, you can jump over mountains and jump over oceans. And so he would just jump everywhere and bounce around the world. He actually destroyed an asteroid with single punch. I mean, he did some amazing things. And over the years, like Superman, the character almost became indestructible. In the original most common version of the Hulk, while he has such great strength, his intellect is far from impressive. Uh, meaning that when he is Dr. Banner, he's the smartest, one of the smartest guys in the room. When he's the Hulk, he is not very smart at all. Now, in more modern iterations, and apparently in the new Avengers film, spoiler alert, coming out this spring, you have the Hulk and uh, Banner kind of merged, and it's, uh, it's all over the news. I mean, they got pictures of him. He's wearing clothes, so you know something's weird about it. Dr. Hulk, I think, is going to be the character, so we'll see. I don't know. But in that merging, he has smartness and strength, and he's kind of merged. But in most cases, he's just the Hulk with a great, uh, great vocabulary featuring such phrases as Hulk smash. That's pretty much it and puny banner. Um, following whatever intense mayhem would occur for and through the Hulk, he would eventually calm down and transform back into banner. And you might find himself sitting at the, at the side of a stream, as one of the films had, and he's in another place totally than where he transformed initially. And one of the key elements in the character as it was devised is that when the Hulk transformed or shrunk back down to Dr. Banner, Banner had no idea what he had done when he was the Hulk. And until he found news reports or discovered that. And so he wouldn't know where he was. He would be in a totally different part on the planet and no recollection of what he had done while the Hulk. Now, powerless to control his emotions, Dr. Banner, of course, and, and unable to keep the Hulk from appearing, he, he uh, is looking for a way, in the, at least in some of the, the stories, to, to cure himself of this. But while doing so, he apparently purchased a lifetime supply of stretchy purple pants because that always blew me away, that everything he wore would just disintegrate except for the giant stretchy purple pants, which would always fit amazingly. So thankfully, we are. So therefore, he's decently clothed. When Banner is the Hulk, here's the connection. When, when Banner is the Hulk, there's not much of Banner left. Hulk will even, in his growls, talk about puny Banner, speak of him as another individual. The Hulk can do remarkable things, but there's a, not much hint of Banner's intelligence, no hint of his intelligence, compassion, or memory. Banner has essentially been taken over by another entity within his own body, something or someone who is not really human. That's the connecting point 
to where we're going with this Apollinarianism, Apollinarianism teaching of the person of Jesus Christ. Many, maybe, many even hold the same understanding of Jesus. They will state that Jesus was just a man with an ordinary human body and a divine will, and Jesus is therefore part human and part divine. Because divinity is greater than humanity, eventually Jesus' humanity is overtaken by his divinity, leaving a Jesus who is not really human at all. And you will discover in the teachings of Apollinarianism that it sounds a whole lot like the Docetism we talked about prior, and a little bit like the Arianism that we referenced in the Thor heresy. So there's not really any new ideas, but there are some merging of some. So let me take you to the the heretical teachings of Apollinarianism, and I know this may be challenging because I'm not using my magic whiteboard tonight. It's, It's frustrating you, is it not? Good. My role is to frustrate you, I guess. I don't know. I just didn't want to um, exert the effort to carry it over here. I was lazy. But don't make me angry about it. No, I'll try to make it as, as clear as I can here. So let's, let's go back on the timeline a bit of some of the things we've talked about. Who brought up the Arianism, the Thor heresy? You did, okay. So in the Thor heresy, if you remember, uh, maybe now, now you're like, oh wait, I don't remember. All I remember was Thor and Arianism. So Thor, uh, the Arianism teaching was that, that God was created, or son of Jesus was created by God. There was a time when Jesus did not exist. And the Arian, was Arius, uh, was, was the guy, and his teaching uh, was in a retaliation to Alexander, who was the bishop of Alexandria, and to Athanasius, this other guy who had taken his position in the church. And so Arius comes up with this doctrine that says that Jesus had a time when he did not, be, did not exist. So he removed the beginning, the, the eternity past out of Christ's nature. All right. So, so Arius comes up that. So Athanasius is teaching this biblical doctrine that says Jesus was fully God and fully human, equal to God the Father in essence, and that he existed from eternity past to a present to eternity future, And he is fully God, not a God, but fully God. So Athanasius and Arius are are at odds. So the the leader of the, the empire calls a council meeting in the town of Nicaea. And in this council meeting, the majority of the people there are siding with Arius, who is, I'm sorry, Arius, who is teaching that, um, that God, Jesus is a created being. The minority group is hanging out and believing Athanasius, who is teaching that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, fully God, fully man. So the minority group is believing truth. The majority group is believing the lie. But when it comes down to the vote, the majority votes to believe the truth. It's an amazing moment. The Nicene Creed is written. The Council of Nicaea is what that is called. And so they determine, after much prayer and argument, no doubt, that the Father and the Son are, as the Word says, homoousis, eternally equal in essence and person. I'm not going to go through all of that again. That's the Thor heresy. You can rewind. You can go online. You can listen to that. That's that teaching. Why does that matter now? It matters now because Apollinaris was a friend and contemporary of Athanasius. So while all that is going on, you've got this third character that enters the story. You've got Arius. You've got Athanasius. They're at odds. And the third one comes in between and says, can't we all get along? But he's friends with Athanasius. Are you following me? Characters. Athanasius, we'll give him a thumbs up. Arius, thumbs down. Apollinaris, friend of the good guy. 
And he's, he is such a friend, he, uh, and he, um, he rose up to take on the bad guy's false teaching. Um, make sure I have this right. He suggested an idea, because there's always the guy that's kind of in the middle going, can't we all get along? He suggested an idea that he thought would bring clarity in an attempt to make sure that nobody removed the deity from Jesus Christ. In other words, he said, Jesus is God, we can't mess with that. So he thought, here's a way we can make it understandable. So he comes up with this concept, and yet in his attempt at a good middle ground, he actually did nothing but create more controversy and confuse people. This is, this is human nature, right? Sometimes, if you ever, I don't know if you've ever done this, but sometimes in our attempts to, to resolve something, to find a middle ground and a compromise or something in the, we might make more of a mess than we, cre- than we create healing. That's what he did. It, I don't think it was his initial intention. His initial intention in his attempt was to lift up the deity of Christ. But in his attempt, he did something tragic. His attempt was so bad that here we are, thousands of years later, sitting in a room talking about him. It would have been better off had we not had the opportunity to talk about him, because he would have not done this. And he is referenced as a creator of a heresy that was so far from biblical teaching that the teaching was named after him. So now we're on the timeline. It's 362 A.D. Apollinaris was named a bishop, (coughs) excuse me, Voice change, it's terrible. Puberty, it's a hard thing. In the year 362, Apollinaris was named bishop of a, t- of a town or a city, the church in Laodicea. I don't know if you've ever heard of the church of Laodicea. It's referenced in the book of Revelation. Christ speaks of this. Let me read this to you in chapter 3 of Revelation, verses 14 and 16. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, and you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold nor hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That is a sanitized way of saying, you make me sick. That's what God is telling his church. You make me want to throw up. I watch what you're doing, I hear what you're saying, and you have offended me so much that when I think of you, I get sick to the stomach and go, Bleh. that's what he's saying. That's, the, that, that's my paraphrase, in case you didn't catch that. That's the Laodicean church. 300 years after that is written, 300 years after being warned by the, by the Apostle John in his writing from the Holy Spirit's inspiration, and actually Jesus giving him these words, 300 years later, the church made another poor contribution to Christianity. When her bishop went off the rails in his own attempt to fight heresy. In an attempt to fight heresy, the bishop of Laodicea created a heresy. Two wrongs make a wrong. And that's what happened. The man meant well. We will give him the benefit of the doubt regarding that. He watched his friend Athanasius and believed that the full deity of Christ must be protected at all costs because salvation of humanity is at stake. Here's something just to kind of file away in the back of your head. If God ever, if you ever find yourself in a position believing that God needs you to protect Him, you might be putting yourself in a wrong position. See, God does not need you or me. 
Now that might offend some, but he doesn't need us. He wants us, he desires us, he loves us. But he doesn't need, you understand where I'm going with that. He doesn't need us, because if he needs us, you worship and I worship a needy God that is not complete unless we show up. So God doesn't need us to fight for him. But he allows us to take a stand for him many times, and we will. But this was a shift where the bishop is going, we've got to do this, I've got to do this, it's all up to me. That's a mistake. That is, that is putting himself in a position that he did not need to be in. Now, Apollinaris understood that a human, a human being was composed of three parts. Okay, so if you're, if you're trying to think logically how he understands life, a human being consists of three elements, three parts. The first part is the body. The second part is the sensitive soul. And the third part is the rational mind. Now, does anybody here, someone this morning did know, I'm just curious, does anybody here have any idea where that concept of identity and humanity comes from? It, it does not come from the Bible. Do you, under, do you, do you, anyone know where that teaching comes from, that a human, a person is made up of three elements, three parts, the body, the soul, and the mind? Anyone? Close. The other one. Okay, the other one. Plato, and we're going to hit through all three, we're going to get them all. It's a Platonic teaching. It's a teaching of Plato. It's a philosophy that permeated the culture and even to this day at times. See, see so what we're looking at here is, is something we've been preaching on and teaching on and thinking on for, for, for quite some time. Is that there is what we believe is there is this way to look at life. And the way to look at life as a follower of Jesus Christ is through a biblical worldview. The scripture becomes our lenses for seeing things. But nobody in this room was born with that worldview. And nobody in this room has it naturally. Everybody's worldview is impacted by numerous things. Things like what your mom and daddy taught you. What your college professors taught you. What your region of where you grew up taught you. What news channel you watch all day long teaches you. What politicians you admire speak to. Our worldviews are man manipulated, are changed, are challenged, and are created not just in a vacuum, but by all of these influences. And it has been that way since the beginning of the human story, at least outside of Eden. So the worldviews that are cultural worldviews lead us to a way of seeing the world and understanding life. We all have these. So the challenge, one of the biggest challenges as a pastor, as a shepherd of a flock, is this. The challenge is the same for me as an individual. Is, as for me as an individual is to, to, to push against all of those influencers in my life that have told me how things ought to be. To ensure that how I view life is not through everybody else's perspective, but through the Word of God. And then, secondarily, as a pastor, as your pastor, is to recognize that nobody joins this church with a concept of a biblical worldview from, from the perspective prior to Christ in their life. All right, no one comes to, to that. We all are pushing against the cultural worldview. So my shift, my challenge is to, to shift all of us together to see the world, to see reality from a biblical worldview. And that is a daily challenge for me, just as it is for you. 
We're always pushing against that. Do you understand what I mean by that? I'm not necessarily responsible for how you view the world, but I am responsible for how I teach and preach and present the gospel so that you can view the world through the, through the biblical perspective. And you and I both know this is a daily, daily struggle. Because we will see things as we see things, and then we'll say, but, and it's, let me just, this is much deeper than a what would Jesus do, but bracelet. I mean, this is more than that. This is a perspective of what does the Word of God say regarding this? So in Apollinaris's world, just about everybody believed that everybody was a body, a soul, and a mind. And that perspective was taught in whatever schools they had, was taught in the culture. Plato's philosophies permeated not just the culture, but the church. So the pastor bishop of this church, believing that a human was composed of three, these three elements, took his belief from a perspective outside of the Word of God to try to put it onto Jesus to better understand how he fit as the second person of the Trinity, God the Son and Son of God. I mean, it's all a good the- theory at this point. But you're putting Jesus in a mold that was created from a non-biblical worldview. Does that make sense? You still with me? All right. It gets even more fun. So let's look at this. Because I'm going to tell you that that's not the biblical perspective of how human humanity is created. And yet, then here's a verse that might make you go, but, 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 didn't Paul say this? 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, in this context and now he wrote this and from his writing style that we see throughout the other letters it is it is clear that he is not giving a complete list of what constitutes a human but if you already have a platonic understanding of what constitutes a human and you read Paul's verse in 1 Thessalonians 5:23 you will run the risk of taking that verse and applying it into your platonic understanding of what makes a person a person well, didn't Paul say we have soul, spirit, and body? Isn't that same as body, soul, and mind? That's kind of the same, right? Three elements. We're made up of three elements. But in no way is Paul trying to say here that human, humanity, or a person, is composed of three and only three things. In context, what we really see Paul saying here, and what he is doing here, is taking some representative aspects of humanity. And basically, here's a paraphrase. This is a paraphrase, so don't, don't look for this necessarily. But here's what he's saying. Hey, may God bless, may God save, and may God keep every single bit of you that makes up you, you. May he do that. Everything that is you be for the, God, for the Father, be for God. And yet Apollinaris, in his reading, in his cultural perspective, read this verse. And in this verse, here's a challenge. Apollinaris found biblical justification for a platonic anthropology. How's that for some fun words? So Apollinaris found a Bible verse that he could convince himself affirmed what he already believed about how manhood or humanity existed based on what was taught in the culture. Are you following me? This one's a little bit, maybe I should have had a whiteboard, but I don't know. So here's the, here's the problem Apollinaris really had at this point. Um, and it's a mistake that is often made today. That I've made it. You've likely made it. Here's the mistake, because it's so common. And we're tempted to do this. Apollinaris 
look to the Bible to find a scripture that affirmed what he already chose to believe. Are you, are you following me? He looked to the Scriptures to find a verse that affirmed what he already chose to believe rather than reading and seeking to discover what the Scriptures actually said. This still happens today and has happened for centuries. White supremacists in the 1800s used the Scripture to affirm their racism. I I had a conversation with former church members years ago. They set up a meeting with me. They came to see me. They wanted to ask me. I've told, told you this, this story, but I'll tell you again. I told it this morning. They had a sincere question for me, and they set up an appointment, came to my office, and they said, hey, pastor, here's our question. We fear our white daughter may date a black man, and we're looking for the verse that says that's not allowed. At that point, I went, Trying to think what class in seminary taught me how to answer that without getting fired. Um, I said, Well, did you look in the Bible? And they go, Yeah, we can't find the verse. It's not there. I said, You'll find these Hebraic passages that say, you know, in the Jewish tribes, don't marry outside the tribes. Those are religious oriented, they're not race oriented. I said, You're going to really struggle when you figure out Moses' wife was black, but let's just go ahead and move on. Zipporah did not look like she was from uh, France or from uh, Ireland. And I said, so, so, so really what, what you're going to have to realize is that the racism you brought into this room looking for a verse to affirm the racism that you want to believe is not going to be found. That meeting ended well. Not well, but right. It ended correctly. Because what happens when you have a preconceived idea of how things ought to be, and then you say, find me a verse so I can beat someone over the head with it and prove my point, you're misusing Scripture to such a degree that you might end up with a heresy named after you if you're not careful. You see why I keep encouraging us to just dig into the Word and the fullness of it? Because whether the prejudice is a racial prejudice or a behavioral prejudice or something, or not a prejudice, but it's, it's a, I'm looking for permission to do anything I want to. There's the other end. You can find a verse out of context that helps you understand the, those kind of things. I mean, you, you can do that. And that's exactly what Apollinaris did with this passage out of 1 Thessalonians. See, 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 it says that. But no, 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 it doesn't. What's even worse is when you are a bishop in a church or a pastor in a church and you pull a verse out of context and you already have your preconceived prejudices in place and you're preaching to the crowd who wants to amen everything because they all have their preconceived prejudices in place and you pull a verse out of context and say, see, and this happens. That's the big danger of, this, this, of what, what Apollinaris was doing here. Everybody on the same page still? We're all all right? Okay. The uh, Bible is a gift to us from God, by God, to make God known. Not to affirm our own preconceived sensibilities and preconceived notions based on a worldview outside of the Word. 
So it will challenge you when you read it. And I don't know if you're, I'm reading the Bible through this year and, and, uh, and just working through a process. I'm doing the one-year Bible. And i got to tell you, I've read the Bible through many, many times. Uh, I discover every time I do it again, every time I start over, I will find something. I'm like, I don't remember that. I found a verse, and I'm not going to tell you, it was in Genesis, or Exodus actually. It was the story of Moses coming, going back up on top of the mountain after, to, after the Ten Commandments were first destroyed, after everybody disobeyed, and he went back up for round two, right? And there is a word in this verse, and I read it to my wife. I said, I've never seen this in the Bible before. It didn't change the story. It's just like, this is such an odd word. And so then I'm, on my app here, I'm changing it from ESV to CSV to KJV to NKJ. And they're all saying this. I said, how in the world did I go 50 years reading this over and over again? And apparently uh, when I was 49 or 48, I didn't care about that word. But now at 50, I'm going, that's a cool word. But I don't even know what it is now. So that was three or four days ago. But you're waiting for it, right? It, it, it's just one of those moments. You read a scripture and you're going, I never saw that before. How can you read something over and over again and not see it before? Because it is a living word, right? It speaks to us. So anyway, according to Plato, the body is the physical body we have. That's pretty easy to understand. The physical body, the arms, legs, the body. Okay, that's us. The sensitive soul, according to Platonic teaching, and this is a a brief overview, the sensitive soul is that part that animates the body and makes us alive. And the rational mind is that highest part of us, the conscious portion that thinks and wills. And according to Platonic teaching, all three are required to be human. Apollinaris proposed that Jesus was human and that he had a physical body and he had a sensitive soul. But he said that his rational mind was divine. So you have these three elements of a human body, or the human, body, soul, mind. Apollinaris says two of the elements are human, but the third element is divine. Jesus' humanity in this teaching was found in his physical body and his life functions, but his deity was found in his intellect and decision-making. The human mind was replaced in Jesus by the divine logos, Word of God. John 1.1, it is Scripture, let me read it to you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. That, that, this verse is right and true and perfect. Apollinaris took it to say that is when Jesus had his human mind, at least at some point, at some point it transformed and was taken over by the divine mind, the Logos, maybe at the baptism. Jesus, by Apollinaris' teachings, by his well-intentioned desire to protect the deity of Christ, he does something that is so dangerous that it strips him of all power. He taught that Jesus was two parts human and one part God. You see where the fractions fall apart now, right? And he said that the human portions, the two-thirds portion, was actually less and lower as in order of vitality and importance. Well, it would have to be if you're going to live with that philosophy. God, the top third is a big time, and the two bottom thirds, they don't even add up to the top third. The math is off, the understanding is off, and Apollinaris, in his understanding or his desire to protect the deity of Christ, which was under attack by Arius and so many others, great for Apollinaris, but he messed up. The second thing he did was not only fighting for this uh, deity of Christ in this argument, he, uh, he understood Jesus to be fully God, had to be immutable. You know that word immutable? I-M-M-U-T-A-B-L-E. Immutable. Today when we say God is immutable, 
We mean that God does not and cannot change in His person and character and in who He is. God is Trinity, always has been, always will be. He is immutable. He is unchanging in that. Apollinaris could, couldn't, had to go deeper than that. had to change it up. He, had to, he said, that's not enough. Apollinaris had a different understanding. And not only Apollinaris, but those under him and many in his day. When they came with the concept of immutability. They believed that God was absolutely unchanging in every aspect. Otherwise, he would be less than divine. Now, on the, on the surface level, you might go, well, that sounds right. But let me tell you what that means. Let me, let me, let me take you to the... When I say unchanging... Here, let me ask this question. When did Jesus become human? The incarnation. Now, Jesus always existed, right? But his humanity... Now, has your head hurt yet? You follow me? The Son of God is eternally the Son of God. But something happened in Bethlehem when his physical human body was born. And prior to that, in Nazareth, when the conception took place. That's not a change in nature or, or, or essence. But it is a... It doesn't mean he's not immutable by how we define immutability, but Apollinaris couldn't handle that. His reasonings were that if God could change, then God would go from something good to something even better. Or something even worse. Both are bad options. Because if God is at a point where He can get better, then that means the God you have prior is not fully God. And if God is at a point where He will get worse, then who would worship that God anyway? So He said He can't change at all. And these... Uh, these ancient options for immutability were rooted in Greek philosophy, but they, as worldviews do, they entered the church. And Christians of the day had no category for change that was not either for better or for worse. Jesus, the incarnation, was not a better or worse change. God has been and always will be perfect. Any change in God, in their perspective, would be a change away towards His perfection, which it isn't. And while that may sound good, if that's true, if their understanding of immutability is true, with that understanding from an ancient perspective, we have a stru- We don't know what to do with the humanity and the incarnation of Jesus at this point. Apollinaris had no place in his understanding of Jesus for a suffering God. Now, here's the question. Did Jesus suffer? That's not a trick question. Yes, he did. The nails hurt, the blood hurt, uh, the, the beatings hurt. He is our suffering. He suffered on the cross. Apollinaris had no place for a suffering Jesus. Had no place for a tempted Jesus. Was he tempted? Well, the Bible says he was. And there's definitely no place for an emotional Jesus. Well, Jesus wept. I think he told jokes too, but you'd have to kind of read into that. You know. That plank in your eye thing is pretty funny when you think about it. He didn't tell jokes for the sake of jokes, but I do think he got people's attention with his illustrations. What's the one, uh, some of you have been to Israel with me, and I'm trying to remember, Al, I'm going to put it on you, you've got to remember this from years ago when we're sitting there at, at Capernaum. The, the, uh, what, is, what is this, now I'm, I'm drawing a blank, the scripture of uh, pearls before swine? Is that the one they use? I think so. It's kind of funny in English, not really, but in Hebrew, the word pearl and swine is almost the same word. I think that's the one. 
I may be off on that. But there was this illustration where you read it and you go, yeah, I, I get that. But when you read it, when you say it in Hebrew, it's kind of a kind of rolls, kind of like, oh, it, jo- it kind of rhymes. And yeah, well, who would do that? That's ridiculous. It's almost a joke with a point. You won't get that in English. And I'm no, I'm no Hebrew scholar, so I'm gonna, that's all I've got for you. So, therefore, Apollinaris taught that Christ was born with a fully formed divine mind and was impervious to any kind of human change. So even then, he said the mind of Christ was never just human. So I take back what I said about the baptism moment. That was another teaching. So here's the problem. I hope you found the problem, but here's, here's just a few brought down into this. In trying to protect the deity of Jesus, Apollinaris created a Jesus that had no humanity, much like docetism. And if Jesus is not fully human, then the cross is not the cross, and the sacrifice is not a sacrifice, and the payment is not a full payment. Apollinaris created a Hulk-like Jesus in this regard. There is a connection here. Jesus wasn't a a person who transitioned into a large green monster, but just as the Hulk, when he is the Hulk, is not really Bruce Banner, and Bruce Banner is not really fully the Hulk when he is Banner, similarly, Apollinaris' Jesus is not really fully God, and nor is he fully man. He's kind of got these competing elements of who he is within his body. Though his efforts were noble, I would say, originally protecting the divinity of Christ, the church soon noticed that his teaching swung the pendulum all the way to the other side, eliminating the biblical Jesus. So, as the church was known to do in the day, they had some meetings. And they gathered to convene to condemn the teaching that was growing. They gathered in this meeting in the year 381. It was the first council of Constantinople. In this meeting, an update of the Trinity-affirming Nicene Creed was made. Not unlike denominations today that reread their doctrinal statements and say, we can say that better. Let's say it again. They updated the Trinitarian statement from the Nicene Creed to make sure that was not lost. In addition, they made sure to condemn the Arianistic teaching, the Thor heresy we talked about. They said, let's put it in writing. That's a heresy. Make sure they get this one too, which was part of the Nicene Creed. And then, by the way, they added this Apollinarianism as well. They said, that one swings the thing way too far to the other side. So that's wrong. So in the, the first council of Constantinople, they declared in a doctrinal understanding that these teachings were heresies. Leads us to the question of who teaches this today. Well, Apollinaris died in 390 A.D. And when he died, most of his teachings died with him. So therefore, you will not find hardly any, if any, self-identified Apollinarius churches today. Unlike last week, when you do have the Unitarians, I think we spoke of them, and you have others. But you don't know, we don't know of any churches or denominations or even cults or sects that would claim this teaching as their primary teaching. So you look at that, well, that's good. That teaching doesn't exist anymore. That's not what I said. What I said was, you have nobody that claims it. The challenge is, is when the teaching seeps in and we don't recognize it. I don't know that Apollinaris realized that that's where he was headed when he started. But he was just too far gone. He said there's no way back, apparently. So here's where it does happen to show up. It doesn't show up in a church with a sign out front, First Apollinarian Church of Orange Park. That's not happening. But it could happen in some of your Sunday school classes. And it could happen at times in churches, and it could happen in Bible studies, and it could happen 
uh, in your Sunday school and your Bible studies when you have a Q&A time. Because once you get into these questions about the identity of Christ, it gets pretty, pretty challenging. And so what we're doing is we're grasp what we, we do, I do, we grasp for illustrations to help make things understandable. And maybe it's not happening in a class. Maybe it's your kids asking you hard questions and you're like, uh, uh, well, it's like this. And, and we struggle with this. So this isn't bad, bad person, you're a heretic. This is be careful to not slide into these teachings. This is the warning. And here's how sometimes it happens. Some Christians today, and this is not just today, but over the centuries, have thought that all God cares about is the spiritual part of us. And that we relate to God only and solely through our faith. That doesn't sound necessarily bad at that point, but there is this element of who we are that becomes a hindrance to those that believe that way. And what they teach is that the mind is the hindrance to faith. Oh, just believe, quit thinking about it. Now you see how it kind of works? Um, Study is an impediment to godly living. That's a teaching. Not necessarily proclaimed as like, hey, come to my class where we tell you not to study. That's not happening. But it does, I've seen it at seminary, especially the first time around back in the 90s. Uh, Folks that are in seminary, that their churches said, don't go to seminary, it'll ruin you. Some little church, don't go, go, they're going to liberal, they're going to turn you into a liberal. Hey, there are people that go to seminary and become liberals. There are. And if they go to the wrong seminaries, they, they, get, they get messed up in the head. Uh, but, but the answer is not to, as Josh McDowell said years ago, don't check your brains at the door when you come to church. And sometimes that teaching is unwittingly offered. Just, just emotions win and faith wins, but don't think about it too hard. You're overthinking. Well, you can't overthink, but don't let that be an, don't, don't let that lead you into this, this, this understanding that the mind is a terrible thing to use. There are Christians who would never pick up a book on theology or listen to a teaching on, on hard doctrinal subjects or read a book on biblical principles based on this understanding, there, there sometimes seems to be a concerted effort to keep religion as a surface-level, feel-good, emotional thing. And therefore, there is an ignoring of this passage of Scripture. Let, let me read this to you. This is Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Even just one verse, the context comes through this one verse very clearly here. Paul writes to the church in Rome and to us, uh, the Holy Spirit speaks to us today through this and says this, Do not be conformed to this world. You may have heard this verse. But be transformed. By what? The renewal of your mind. Not your heart. Not your faith. Not your spirit. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. See, when you read Romans 12.2 under the segmented heading of a living sacrifice, it's pretty clear that to be a mature follower of Jesus Christ requires that, that you follow this as a command, not a suggestion. That you be transformed daily. By God's Spirit, but how does that occur? By renewing your mind. By renewing your mind. By thinking on the things of God. By dwelling on the things of God. Let me, let me, let me help, maybe this will make it clear. I said it earlier, it's, I'm trying to, I don't mean it as an offense, but here's the fact. Nobody in this room uh, showed up on this planet with a biblical worldview. You did not. You, you, you cannot. 
When you become a Christian, the Spirit of God indwells you and gives you insight to have a biblical worldview. But even as a saved Christian with heaven secure, it is very, very easy. In fact, it takes no effort to be a Christian with a cultural worldview rather than a biblical worldview. Okay? So how do you think the way Christ thinks? How do you see things the way God wants you to see it? How do you have a world, how do you change your worldview glasses out to see things from a biblical perspective? Romans 12, 2 tells you. You renew your mind. So this, this pushback against a learned uh, Christians against studying more. Now, I'm not saying anybody needs to go to school and get a degree. I know a lot of people with degrees that have no wisdom and no intelligence. Some have said the same about me. So that does not qualify you as a learned individual just because you have finished a task and earned a paper on the wall. But the renewal of your mind is the, in, is the time and the word. You go, well, I don't understand all that. Just, just press on. Just press on. Read. Don't give up. Study. Fall under the leadership of a mentor. Be a disciple who makes disciples. You do all that's a command as well. This is heavy when you realize you're going to go to heaven and Jesus says, Who'd you disciple and brought with, who'd you bring with you? Well, you know, I just I just I just I just went to church. Good. I don't see that in the Great Commission. So wh- wh- when did you make a disciple? I mean, I that, that that I wear I mean that heavy heavy upon me. That's heavy upon me. Am I making disciples? Am I making disciples who can make disciples? Well, in other places where the heresy shows up, is not only in the understanding of intellect and study and growth in the mind. Oh, oh here's something. Let me just tell you this. This is an interesting thing. I, I've met this week with two pastors, just friends of mine, just lunch. It's great to have just, I drove over to, uh, to uh, the town center to meet one of my friends that lives over there at the beaches near Oak Harbor, actually. And we met and had lunch. And, and, here's, and this happens all the time when you meet with pastors are weird. We're like this. Here's the question. Hey, what you reading right now? I'm like, well, I just read a comic book uh, about Superman. It's pretty cool, which I did. But I said I got about four or five books. And I went through them and I said, you know, and not every book I'm reading is a Christian spiritual book. I said I'm reading a biography with about 1,200 pages on Winston Churchill right now. I feel like I've accomplished a lot because I've read a couple of hundred pages, but the little bookmark is really close to the front, so it bothers me. So I may put that back up and go read another comic book. You know, I can read those in about 15 minutes. So, but I'm reading that. I said I'm reading a book on, um, on family ministry and the family in America and, and, the, and the disillusion of that. I'm reading a, I'm reading a book. Uh, I've got one on my shelf from Jackie Hill Perry who, uh, called uh, Gay Girl, Good God about her journey of faith. I've, I've read Christopher Yuan's book on holy sexuality. I mean, I've read all these. And so, and I ask, and I do that, and I say, what are you reading? And we'll spend 15, 20, 30 minutes just talking about, wow, this is what I'm learning. And here, I'm sitting over here, and he's sitting over there, and we've all been to school, and we've been to school for a whole lot, and, and we've, we've got all these things, but, but we're still sitting there looking at each other going, I have so much to learn. And, everything, and, and then we come back and say, but the thing I'm reading every day is I open with the Word of God, and I'm seeing things I haven't seen, and I should have seen this because, I've, I mean, I'm a preacher. You should know it all by now, right? Keep reading. Keep studying. And you find people around you, as the Bible says, who will sharpen you. Iron sharpens iron. Spend time with those folks. So anyway, here's another area. What time is it? Time to go? Oh, it's not time to go. 
Good, because i got a lot more to go. You guys need a break? Do we need to stand up and run around the room, jump and jack? We're all right? Did it just all of a sudden turn into like 100 degrees in here, or is it just me? Okay, good. Yes. I'm going to repeat this so the recording. Yeah, go ahead and finish. I'm going to repeat it. Yeah, so what Alan's saying, he says, sees a theme in all of these heresies is the justifying of one's belief by taking passages out of context. Did I hear you correctly? Yeah, and I think that's a, and, and, and so, you know, I know I get on soapboxes all the time. My wife said, you said the same thing four weeks in a row. Okay, I get it. If you're doing a Bible verse a day, that's okay, but just don't let that be all. Get into the context of what it says. That, that's my challenge because a, a, a verse out of context is, is like giving a, a a sharp knife to your kid. I mean, it, it, okay, you can cut the cake, but I better watch you the whole time because you might cut something else too, right? It's dangerous. And, and, and I think it's, now I trust the Spirit. I trust God to protect. I mean, I, I don't want to say, oh, we're scared to death of anything. I'm just saying that, that in, 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 and what I'm trying to do is, here's Romans 12, 2 again. All right, let me read the rest of that. Let me read it one more. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why? That by testing you, you may discern what is the will of God? So, so you, Christians, when you're in a Bible study, when you're in a group, and, and when you're brother or sister in Christ, I mean, I mean it, brother or sister in Christ, not somebody you're against, not somebody you hate, somebody you love, you're going to spend eternity with. And they're in there, and they say something, well, I read this verse, and I think it means this. And out of love, you go, no, discerning, that's not exactly what it means. I had a friend of mine just, just recently say, I got a verse, I got a question for you. He's, and, and, he, and he said, does, and, he, and he found the verse, and we looked it up, and we're at our Bible study, and I look at it, and I go, yeah, okay, that verse. And he goes, does that verse mean this? And I said, no. I said, I know where you're going with it, and that's, I understand why you're going there. Due to family, personal issues, I get that. But that verse doesn't mean that. Look back, and let's look at the fullness. So you can make it mean that, but you you know the danger? You're Apollinarianizing it is what you're doing. So be very, very careful. That wasn't a heresy issue on his cake. That was just, I'm just looking for a verse that might help somebody. I said, well, it might, unless they read the passages before and afterwards. All right. Hey, here's a good example, because Southern Baptists are not immune to this. Years ago, we had an evangelism training course called Faith, F-A-I-T-H. And you had to memorize verses for every letter, and you would lead somebody to the Lord. If you would walk through the F-A-I-T-H, I can tell you how to become a Christian. And there was a passage, and I forget, you can look it up, but it says... Uh, uh, mercy is without justice, I think was the passage. Something like that. And it came to this point where mercy is without justice. Or justice without, justice without mercy. Justice without mercy. And as we read that, even our pastors on staff at the time, I think Jack Partridge is the one that brought it up when he was here as an associate. He said, that verse doesn't mean what they're saying it means. So what do you mean? I said, look at here. What they did is they found a verse with the word justice in it. <laughs> they said, yeah, we can use that one. And so it had to be, we had to redo it. And, you know, shame on them. But it's easy to do. It's easy to do. So I said the first thing is the mind. The other thing that is the issue where you start seeing it seep in is the temptation of Christ. Here's, here's how. We understand temptation, that hopefully we understand temptation is bad. And all of us are tempted. So temptation is bad. 
Being tempted is not a sin. You do know that, right? Okay, because Jesus was tempted. So temptation is bad. It is dangerous. We're not supposed to submit to it. But here's the struggle. When we face temptation and some loving Christian says, yeah, well, you know, Jesus fought temptation too, and he defeated temptation. He did not fall to the temptation. And our human response is often something like, yeah, but he's Jesus. You catch it? You may have said it. Yeah, but he's Jesus. And unknowingly, what we've just said is this. He's not fully human. No, that's not what I meant. No, that's exactly what you said, though. You see how that works? I'm battling this temptation. Well, Jesus fought temptation, and he won. Yeah, but he's Jesus. I'm not Jesus. And now we're all of a sudden saying his temptation, by saying that, what we're saying is his temptation was not really a temptation. And I know that leads to more questions, and I'm not answering them. Questions like, well, could he have sinned? If he had fallen, could he have done that? I think Jesus in his perfection would not have. I think his full humanity, he would not have because of who he is as God. But, but to start saying, but he's Jesus, it really wasn't in temptation, is to, is to say that he really wasn't hungry, and he really wasn't thirsty, and he really wasn't tired, and he really hadn't been in the wilderness for 40 years, and he really was but here's something to note in the temptation of Christ, rather than just push aside saying he really wasn't tempted, he really wasn't human, is to ask this question. How did he fight the temptation? What did he do? He, read, he quoted Scripture. And he wasn't tempted just to give us a great model to know how to do this. That's a whole teaching for another day. But, but he was fully tempted as the Son of God. And since many cannot fathom that Jesus truly faced temptation, they don't see how his battle can even help them. Therefore, fighting temptation as Jesus did is simply a standard and not a good, and a good church statement, but not reality, really. You see how it seeps in? Even into our own philosophy. But it, this is called the worldview infection. It happens. So let's see some things from the book that Miles put together that he pulls from Scripture just to remind us in a synopsis. And, and not to totally re- repeat the docetism study, the Superman heresy we spoke of four weeks ago, five weeks ago, but to ensure what, that we do get this, here are a few things to remember. Jesus had a real human mother, and he experienced a real human birth. I mean, it's just facts, just go there. Jesus grew up like a real human child. Now, I know that that's even hard for, you know, what does that mean? Well, I don't believe he ever sinned. I think Scripture is very clear on that. So Jesus never sinned. But Jesus was a real three-year-old at one point running around. Jesus was really in second grade or whatever that is, seven years old. He was really a teenager. He was really a 12-year-old who stayed back in church to talk with some old guys. I mean, this is Jesus really growing up like a real human being. He wasn't fast-tracked. He wasn't born in Bethlehem and then two days later, 30 years old. We don't have all those stories. You know why we don't have all the stories of what he did as a teenager in the canon? We don't need them. There you go. How's that? Jesus, based on what we read and we believe and we know to be true, is he really got hungry? He really got thirsty? Remember when he got hungry? Why else tempt him to say, turn the rocks into bread and eat? He really got thirsty. He stopped by a well in Samaria to get something to drink. 
He really got tired. If you remember the story where he fell asleep at the bottom of a boat where the rain and the waves, you got to be really tired to sleep in that situation. And he was not faking it. He wasn't doing that just for a great Bible story for our kids. He was tired. He did all those things and more just like other, other human beings. Oh, and here's something else Jesus did like every other human being except for just a couple in the Old Testament. He really died. He really died. He died on a cross. He didn't go to sleep. He wasn't just unconscious. He physically died. The heart stopped beating. The brainwave stopped. The electricity through the body quit. Whatever it was, it stopped. There was no air going through the lungs. He was dead. Now, Apollinaris would not deny that Jesus was human like this. His Platonic philosophy allowed him to believe all this still. But he had this third of Jesus that was the divine part that he held above it. Now here's the question. Is it true that humans or people are constituted of those three things? If so, let's just say it is for the sake of argument. Is it true that Jesus did not have a truly human mind? The answer is no. He had a fully human mind. And a fully divine mind. The math doesn't work, but it's true. The Bible teaches that to be true. Here's some statements from Scripture. Humans are made up of two main aspects. Did you know this? Humans are made up of two main aspects, not, not three, as Plato said. The two main aspects are, are connected with many different integrated parts. Adam, Adam was not com- com- created from nothing. You ever thought about that? I mean, other things were. Jesus, God, God uh, the Father, He speaks the earth into being, right? He creates. But then when it comes time to create Adam, He does, he does speak it, but He doesn't just speak it. He, he actually does something. Here's what it says in Genesis 2-7. God formed the man from the dust of the ground, the physical, and then He breathed into His nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So humanity, men, people, we are made from two things. The, the dirt is the example, the physical and the breath of God in this point, the immaterial. So the material and the immaterial come together. That makes us human. That makes us unique. It makes us different than every other created being. Now I get it. I know there are passages in the Genesis passage that says, and God also breathed the breath of life into the animals as well. However, it says that only Adam and Eve were imago Dei, made in the image of God. Here's a statement that'll be fun for you. Humans don't have souls. I'm hoping that whoever's listening online will listen to the rest of this. That's a contradictory statement. It sounds like a controversy, right? Humans don't have souls. But here's the answer. Here's the biblical teaching. Humans are souls. And to have something and to be something is not the same. Now, let me explain this. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, literally says this, that this man, the man, became a living creature. The Hebrew word nefesh, which is used here for living creature, can also, and is often also, in other places is, translated not as living creature, but living soul. So throughout the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament, when you see the term soul, it is this word and it is used like this. So, Here's the question, you know, people say, well, isn't the soul the part of you that goes to heaven? And according to what is often said in the language we've created known as Christianese, sure. However, we do believe, well, it is, we believe the immaterial aspect that makes that is part of us as human, that which we often call our soul, 
does endure beyond death. It is that aspect that goes on to be with the Lord and awaits the second coming of Jesus Christ. Or, for those who do not know Jesus, it is that immaterial portion that awaits judgment. That portion we, we, we kind of get, but understand this, that's not how the Bible uses the word soul. Soul in the Bible describes the person as a created being. Therefore, when the word soul is used in Scripture, it is used to define the totality of you, the, of your life. It is that which makes you alive. Throughout the Bible, the word translated soul is interchangeable with the word for life. So when we construct this ghost that lives within us that kind of escapes our body to go to heaven, and that's our soul, we are not getting the fullness of what Scripture teaches regarding who we are. In the past, even in, I would say, the recent past, in the last century, in English, we understood, or we at least used this term this way. If a ship goes down off the coast and 30 people on the ship die, the news reports would say, a ship has gone down off the coast And 30 souls lost. And we know what that means. It's the same understanding. So here's the question. Because I bring that up, and then you bring this up. Matthew 10, 28. Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both, both soul and body in hell. Body and soul, Jesus speaks of. So Jesus is saying, fear, admire, worship the God who can destroy in judgment the totality of who you are as a created being. And according to the Bible, a human being is a living person, a living soul that is composed of material and immaterial aspects. There are many different parts to those aspects. So this is the breakdown where Plato doesn't work. We are composed of bodies with all the numerous parts of our physical bodies. We have our souls, our spirits, our consciousness, our minds, our hearts, our strengths, etc. Whatever language or word we can throw to that to define the immaterial mixed with the material. But when the Bible speaks of a loving God, of loving God with all our heart, souls, mind, and strength, it is not a listing of the categories of parts of you that you're supposed to love God with. Sometimes we read it that way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, I love him with all my heart, but I didn't love him with all my soul today. I loved him with all my, my strength, but not all my mind today. I mean, we, how do you even know when you do that? That's not the point of that passage to delineate and create a list of parts that you are to offer to God. What that passage is speaking of, and with the truth of it, the fullness of it, is that you and I as followers of God are to love him with everything that we are in all aspects. However, whatever category you can come up with. Because if you're not careful when you start categorizing things, you will categorize an an area of yourself that you will keep away from God. Even the Pharisees were doing this. Jesus gets all over them saying, Woe to you! Remember when they were naming some kind of... They were not taking care of their elderly parents? Because they would claim this this money or this that they had as as, as something that was special and, and unique and for God alone... And yet it wasn't. They were holding it and, and hoarding it so they wouldn't be uh, uh, required to use their riches to take care of their elderly family members. Woe to you for just categorizing things for your own good. What God is saying here in the Scripture is love God with all that is you. Jesus fought temptation as a man. The fight with Satan in the wilderness shows Jesus' human mind. Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Jesus quotes Scripture. He was a well-read guy. He, he apparently... Apparently, Jesus, as a kid, went to Sabbath school. That is a real deal, by the way. I don't know if you knew that. That really happens. Sabbath school and synagogue. 
I'm just telling you, we know how Jesus grew up based on the one passage of Scripture that just gives us a little insight as a young man where it says that he grew, how did it say, what did it say? He grew in, in favor with man and God. Now you do with it what you want to, but here's what this means. Jesus didn't do travel ball when he should have been in church. And he didn't have a week, and he didn't have a season pass to keep him out of the house of God so he could be somewhere else for fun because he deserved it. You do what you want to, but I'm going to tell you, Jesus grew in favor with God and man. And when it came time to fight the devil and the temptation in the wilderness, he didn't have to call his youth pastor or text him for a verse. He knew it. Well, yeah, but he's Jesus. Be careful. Be careful what you do there. He's fully human too. He's fully human. Why is this important? Because Jesus came to set the captives free, did he not? That was in his inaugural address. When he goes back home to Nazareth, unrolls the scroll of Isaiah, reads the passage and says, I've come to set the captives free, rolls up the thing, says, hey, I'm the answer to that prophecy. I'm here. They kick him out, of course. But he came to set the captives free. He came to set us free. He came to set us here, I don't know if we catch this, but just, just hold on to this one for a moment, and then I'm going to wrap it up. He came to set every part of us free. Not just our spirits, not just that ghostly part that we think goes to heaven. All of us, our minds. He came to set our minds free so that we could think on the things of God. He came to say, set our bodies free. You go, well, my body, I'm sick, I've got cancer, I'm, I'm battling this, that, and the other. There is a moment of glorification when you get a new body, too. You know this happens, right? The freedom is coming. He has come to set us free if we surrender to Him. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, there is not one part of your humanity that He is not able or capable or desirous to redeem. How we think is important. I wish I'd have come up with this closing statement, but I'll just read it to you. Christ's followers are not only to think about the right things, but to rightly think about everything.